I was working 22 hours a day, on my phone constantly, always behind on everything, had no idea what was going on, put on 30 pounds in a year, like very painful year. So when I left private equity to do Masa, I decided a few things. One, I would sleep as much as I needed. So I don't have alarms when I wake up. I don't take meetings before 1 p.m. if I can avoid it. I try to go to sleep at 10 or 11, sleep nine-ish hours a night when I can. And I try to be very present. I'm now very intentional that if I'm in a place, I'm present, my phone does not exist. Everything will be there when I get back, it's fine. There are almost no crises that need to be responded to within an hour. Seth Goldstein is co-founder of Ancient Crunch, a family of brands focused on building new age health foods for the modern consumer. After launching in 2023, Masa Chips, the company's flagship product, exploded onto the wellness scene and has already sold over 250,000 bags. In this episode, we cover Seth's personal wellness journey, why more consumers are ditching seed oils, raising capital from top health investors, and Masa's record-breaking growth to date. Welcome back to episode 22 of the Turning Pro Podcast. Today we have Seth Goldstein, who's the co-founder and CFO, the Masa Chips guy. <laughs> the Masa Chips guy, yeah. yeah. Thanks yeah. for joining us today, Seth. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Let's jump right into it. Give us the quick backstory on on this amazing brand that you're building right now. Yeah, my, my pleasure. So uh, Masa Chips is the first product of the next fruit Olay. It's kind of the vision we set out. On the backstory... It's, it's January 24 right now. Yeah, time is flying. But two years ago, my co-founder and I, Stephen, were in Miami. I'm hungover. It's New Year's Day. And I'm eating Tostitos. And he comes over and starts making fun of me for eating shit. So he, uh, his backstory, which is pretty important, uh, kind of a frail guy growing up, had to be careful what he ate, got really into nutrition, health, all that stuff. Uh, summer 21, he becomes a micro-influencer on TikTok and Instagram talking about seed oils. Um, so that was this thing, really tan man. And um, January 1st, I'm sitting there eating Tostitos hungover, and he comes downstairs to make fun of me, saying, that's engine lubricant, what are you eating? And I start, we're ribbing each other and telling him, like, you know, you're probably right. I'm not disagreeing on the, on the biochem. Like, I have not, I haven't looked into any of this stuff. I'm sure you're correct. But I'm working in private equity. I don't have time to cook everything. And I don't really care, right? I'm, I'm like 24 and healthy. It, it doesn't matter. Um, that conversation inspired him to go buy a bunch of tortillas, put them in beef tallow and fry them up and, and prove to me that you could actually have really good foods. Um, same exact experience, if not better, but made with real, with real ingredients. Uh, that turned into a package and really wasn't a company until summer-ish of 22. Um, the first bag was sold in July at uh, you know prices that made sense from our cost structure. Um, and from there just kept selling out. So we made a batch, sold out, made another batch, sold out. Um, he quit his job in September of 23, of 22. I sold, I quit private equity March of 23. And up until this, it was like really his project. And I was aware of it, but you know, curious, um, sometime Q1 of 23, he shows me the numbers. I started doing some data chopping in Excel and I say that this is a great business. Like th this is the one. Um, so I jumped ship in March. At that point, we were doing, um, I don't know, maybe 10,000 bags a month. Right now we're doing about 30,000, so growing pretty fast. That's nine months later. Um, supply constraint the entire time. And the vision is ultimately to be the snack that you have if you're someone who cares about what you put in your body. Can you catch everyone up before we dive in as to why seed oils are not good for you? Yeah, so the biochem is complex. I don't want to distill it into 15 seconds, but the core of it is that seed oils are really fragile molecules. So if you think about what your body's composed of and what a seed needs from a um, like a biocarbon perspective, 
the fats you want in a seed break down very easily and they enable the energy to come out to go build the plant. For your body, most of your body fat is actually stable and should stay stable and not break down constantly. Uh, the cells that make up your body are uh, built with uh, a lipid bilayer, which is made of fat coming from what you eat. And so as you eat fats that are more fragile, they start breaking down more easily. The result of that is that all of your organs end up failing faster because they're made of the wrong chemicals, basically. Um, there's a second layer of this, which is part of the obesity crisis, where seed oils don't trigger satiation. And so if you try to eat you know, a family-sized bag of Tostitos, probably, shamefully, everyone's kind of been there, right, where you're watching a game. I can you, do two bags. Yeah, two. Yeah, you could do three. Um, but you, you, you sit down, you're watching a game, and you look down, you've eaten like a pound of Tostitos. What the fuck? How did I eat a pound of fried corn? Like, that's weird. But if you sit down with a steak, you're going to eat you know, a good chunk of it, but you'll feel full. Like, you will not keep eating at some point. Um, and my, Stephen can explain the biochem. He's more into that stuff. But the, the core of it is seed oils don't create satiation. And so you just keep eating. And um, yeah, using saturated fat, beef tallow in particular for masa lets you enjoy a snack, but finish. Yeah. So Ben and I have had. 20 plus founders on here now. Yeah. And I feel like everyone that walks in is in one of two camps. They're either incredibly high strung and run in here and are responding to texts, calls on Slack, sending emails. Mm -hmm. And then there are a handful that walk in very laid back, very chill. I'm sure there's a lot happening in their companies at the time, Sure, but they're pretty laid back about it all. Yeah. And those tend to be the better operators that I've met so far. And for context, when Seth walked in here, we had the most laid back conversation for about 20 minutes. And so walk me through, have you always been that way? Is this no, th this a recent is, development? Th this is an intentional learned behavior. Um, so private equity life, when I got to private equity, uh, for context, I don't know the audience, um, most people in private equity come from banking, where you're in Excel constantly for two years straight. I came from consulting and I came from COVID consulting. So I didn't know anything. I get to private equity and private equity is always a pretty hard job as an associate. For me, it was terrible. Great experience, learned a lot, but I was working 22 hours a day, on my phone constantly, always behind on everything, had no idea what was going on, uh, put on 30 pounds in a year, like very painful year. Um, glad I did it, learned a lot. Oh, water was an hour late. We can run that back. Yeah. Okay. Was it really 22 hours a day? Yeah, I would, like uh, actually? I would we're typically gonna, work. Yeah. yeah. Because we were talking about this last Yeah, that's a good topic. Like um, actually I would typically work from six to four. I, I would rip a nap and then go back to work. Nap in the building? From oh, 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. Oh, you were remote, so you were just... Uh, I would go in. At some point, I would catch either an Uber or a bus in. I'd work on the bus. Did you open come? Yeah. Oh, that was just an unlucky packet. That was like yeah. a bug. <laughs> no, all good. I was teeing you up on your... Oh, that you weren't always this way. Yeah. Yeah. Do, uh, do you want to start with the beginning of the question? I don't know how to... Just take it. So okay, you weren't sure. always this way. What? Yeah. yeah. So um, prior to Masa, I was in private equity, which has a big reputation as a hard job. No, you started with it was a learned behavior. It was uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was not always this way. Uh, very much a learned behavior, a, a choice and intention to change the way I am. Um, prior to Masa, I was working in private equity, and when I got to private equity, I got my ass kicked. Most people who do private equity do two years of banking, and they're working 18 hours a day, really hard, learning Excel really well, learn Outlook, all of the like, core office tools that you need just to function in a corporate environment in, in like a consulting, banking, private equity context. I did consulting, which is a lot less Excel, and I did it during COVID, which meant you didn't work half the time. So I got to private equity with 
really not the skill set you need to be an associate in private equity. Got my ass kicked, worked 6 a.m. to 4 a.m. for months on end, put on 30 pounds in a year. Um, I just didn't have the skill set to, to start. Um, and that sucked. Didn't want to do that again. So when I left uh, private equity to do Masa, I decided a few things. One, I would sleep as much as I needed. So I don't have alarms when I wake up. If I, if I have a flight or something, I'll set an alarm, obviously. But um, I don't take meetings before 1 p.m. if I can avoid it. Um, so it's exceptional if I take a meeting at any time a.m. Um, I try to go to sleep at 10 or 11, sleep nine-ish hours a night when I can. And um, I try to be very present. So I, I had a really bad habit. This was both work and my personal life where I'd be on my phone mid-meal and you know, you're with someone who wants your attention and you're texting somebody else and you're looking at memes or whatever. And it just, when you process how shitty that is, um, and sometimes people force you to process how shitty that is, I, I think it's a big wake up call was for me at least. And so I'm now very intentional that if I'm in a place, I'm present, my phone does not exist. Everything will be there when I get back. It's fine. Like there, there are almost nothing, there are almost no crises that need to be responded to within an hour. They happen once a year, but like they don't. Right. So um, I'm very, very intentional that if I'm in a place where I'm supposed to be present, my phone is away. I'm there with the people I'm with and in the, in the moment. I'm so fascinated by this because I, look, I never made it into the corporate world. So there's a part of that that I can't really relate to. Sure. I think I hear my banker friends tell me I work 22 hours a day. And in my mind, I'm like, how is that e even a thing? But it is a thing. It, I think yeah. it's, it's way easier to hear someone say it than to be like, no, come sit in the office with me for 22 hours for a week straight and see what this is like. The part that I'm curious about as a founder, I feel like you are your backdrop, right? When you're in private equity, someone else is paying your bills. Mm -hmm. So I, in my mind, it's all the more reason to be more high strung, more stressed out when you're your own backdrop. So I I'm fascinated by the fact that you had this like, the switch yep. once you actually put more pressure on yourself in regards to now you're betting on yourself no, there's no one else there to pay your bills yet that was the moment that you now were able to genuinely be okay with yourself waking up you know later than you did before not mm -hmm. taking meetings i still think it's something i'm working on every day is like understand that not everything needs to be done yesterday there will always be more to do yeah i think a part of that for me is a lot of clarity on how the, the universe pays you as a founder um, as opposed to how your employer pays you as an employee. So somebody in every organization has a vision for what needs to actually happen. That vision then gets translated down through the organization into all the execution work. And your execution, as long as the output is decent enough quality, if you're willing to work 22 hours a day, I should stuff you with work, right? So if I just say, press that button, and I get paid for every time you press the button, I'm paying you a salary, I'm going to press the button as many times as you will. At the founder level, at the executive level, whatever however you want to frame it, um, and I, I think it's really about the executive function, your job is to figure out what to do. And so it's not like you can press buttons repeatedly and get rich. If your founder doing more work is not necessarily translating to value creation, it's about having insights, relationships, connections, the, the things that have needle moving impacts. For Masa, for example, we're going to do $3 million or so in meta spending this year. If I can find ways to acquire those customers and save a million and a half on meta spending, that is worth a lot more than sending one more email about procurement for this thing or design or whatever. So in my opinion, figuring out how you change your P&L in a fundamental way and then making that happen is where value is created. And it's, it's just very decoupled from linear execution of, of pressing buttons. So you said something else uh, yesterday, actually, when we were at dinner 
because we were talking about the fact that you don't take meetings before one. And the comment you made to me was that you value your time at $10,000 an hour. Yeah. I want you to dig into that a little bit. And is that something you've always carried or was that more when you became a founder? And then I would love to just know the mindset switch when you started to just enact that thought on your day to day. Yeah. And so this is kind of a weird topic uh, and it's good to unwind. Like it's not that I'm pricing out, like is this friend worth the time or whatever, but um, especially when I think about how do I create value for the business, there are things that might save me 200 bucks, which is nice, right? But if it's going to take me three hours, I should just not do it. It's, it's not worth the, the time. Like my time is worth more than that. And there are things that have a probability of making me 10 million, right? And so when you think through how do I allocate scarce hours to creating value, you have to create some anchor for where you just say no to all the things that are below that line. Um, for me, $10,000 an hour is a high enough anchor where it's a little absurd, right? Obviously, but it tells you for all those little things that are not going to move the needle, you can say no. And you have a, a structure that enables that. Um, I think there are founders who do this wrong. Like they, they do that too early when they don't actually have a business to go fix. They are still trying to create a business and they should be doing more execution because they have no capital. Um, but as your business grows, you can hire out and delegate more of the work to people who, you know, like are willing to, to get it done. Um, saying no to lots of things and keeping your plate clear for things that matter, I think is really important. I think it also should be divided into phases of the business, probably yep. like pre and post product market fit. Yep. I think the pre product market fit, I remember when verbatim was first going through that the first year, it was very important that in some way I was stressed and I was running around and I was trying to fix things inside the business. Yep. And I think that stress actually led to a lot of good things because you're mm-hmm. constantly trying to solve little problems and little problems and little problems. Yep. I, I, I'll disagree with you a little bit. I don't know if I'd use the word stress. I think motivation is important. Yeah, um, I agree. For me, the way I feel motivated is I like cracking problems, puzzles, whatever you want to call it. I, um, I played this game Civilization as a kid. Oh, I, uh, I, game. Oh, yeah. I put my hours in on that yeah. game. I, I think uh, Steam tells you how many hours you played. I think I played 2,000 hours in high school, which is a crazy amount of time for a game. Wow, Steam, um, what a throwback. Yeah. God. <laughs> uh, but I love that game. And uh, for me, when I'm thinking about work or whatever, it's all empire building. It's how do you like line up the right investments today to create these like beautiful scaled outcomes that pay off down the road. It's fine. Um, but it's, it's like very fun to build the empire correctly with the right, like, you know, laying the groundwork correctly to start. Um, so I don't experience that as stress. Actually, I experience that as motivation, but I I agree with you. Motivation is really important. Mm. I think it's the constant kind of like running around and trying to fix things again. Mm. It can stem from motivation, but I'm curious, was there, was there a specific phase of the business where you can call it product market fit or once you Mm -hmm. hit a certain revenue threshold, Yep. that you were able to transition into kind of a different type kind of operator or a little bit more higher up problem solving. Definitely. Um, I think we have, we're a D2C business today, basically. Um, I think there are three things that matter on the D2C side. One is customer acquisition, two is retention, and three is production. And four is conversion on your e-commerce store. Of, of, and platter. Shout out platter. Yeah. Shout out platter. <laughs> um, but I think those are like the, the three things, right? Like, make chips to sell, find customers to buy them, and keep selling those same customers' chips by keeping them happy. Um, the manufacturing side, my business partner fortunately basically owns. The acquisition side, we figured out through a couple agencies, create content, put, put it behind meta ads, it's working. And retention is basically solved on email marketing. And so by structuring where revenue comes from and breaking it down into actual customers, I, I've talked to some people who have revenue, but they have no idea where it comes from. It's 
you know, Shopify pays me, it's great. Um, I think having clear structure on where revenue comes from, what drivers you control, what you need to do to control those things, and then delegating the actual execution of that out to people, you end up with not a ton to do. It's kind of kind of nice. You know, so I think it's just like creating structure and then delegating execution out to the right people. So my word of the year is simplify. Yeah. And that is what I'm hearing from you is something, Absolutely. one of your superpowers is just <laughs> taking complex problems and then spitting them back to someone to make it sound like a six-year-old can understand what you're trying to do. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll take that. Is that, I, I want to dig into the reason we call the podcast Turning Pro Podcast, which by the way, take a look at that sign. It's the first episode. That's a beautiful sign. First the episode sign. with the sign. The sign. Um, but I'm curious to know in your mind, what was that turning pro moment for you where you realize you're playing at a whole new level than what you maybe were before that? Um, I think with some time in private equity, I, um, so the, the way a team works in private equity, to get some context, a deal comes in. It's some business that someone, one of us built, right? And it's doing a hundred million bucks in revenue or whatever, and the founders kind of fried. They're ready to hang up the cleats and sell it. And they'll go to a bank. The bank will make a pitch deck saying, this is a great asset. It's the best thing you've ever seen. You should pay us a trillion dollars for it. And that'll get sent down to someone like me, an associate at a P fund. They're 24 years old, Harvard, Goldman, all the fancy credentials. Um, and they'll start chopping it up. That work is not that insightful. It's a lot of translating their pitch deck into something more credible. Um, you have to be bright enough, but it's, it's not rocket science. You could do it sleep deprived. Um, it's a lot of formatting and getting formulas in Excel and, you know, doing reasonable enough customer calls and, and things like that. The, that work gets fed up to your deal lead, who's a principal or a managing director. Um, and then they ultimately lead the discussion with the fund manager, the GP saying we should do this deal. This is what it looks like. Um, this is what we have. We structure it with the banker and the seller and the credit guys and blah, blah, blah. And then the GP looks at it and says yes or no. So it's they actually don't do that much work at the GP level if they want to. Um, their fundamental decision is to take all the work done by the deal team and say, yes, we're doing it or we're not doing it. Um, my view was that I was really good at that job, actually. So I... Being the MD as being, an associate being, is how you described it. Yeah, my, my nickname uh, in private equity was Seth MD, which was like kind of an insult, kind of a compliment. <laughs> I took it. I enjoyed it. Um, but I was really good at just saying this is the thing that matters and this is the decision we should make as a function of this information, which um, I don't know, not everyone has, I'm, I'm glad to have it, it's, it's a nice skill. And so I started thinking at that point, like I should really be running a fund, I don't, I'm not actually that good at details, I'm, I f up in Excel all the time and my PowerPoints are all ugly and I, I really don't care about things that I decide don't matter. Um, and I, I think I have a good filter on whether or not things matter or not. Um, and so I'm, I'm in the wrong role. Like I should not be a junior at a fund. It's, it's a really bad fit actually. Um, so that insight was kind of there and that looped in with this insight that every organization is vision. So someone who actually makes decisions about what should be done, feeding down into execution at the you know, bottom of the pyramid and that feeds back up and there's an iterative process. Um, and I, I basically just said, I, I need to be here. Like, I, I'm really bad, actually, at being a, an execution guy. I will get details wrong, and I will not believe you often if, you're, if I'm supposed to report to you and you tell me to do something. If, if I think you're wrong, like, and, you, and we don't have the relationship that allows feedback, I'm, I'm just not going to do it or I'll do a poor job because I, I think it's a waste of time. Um, and so I decided with that, I need to be in that, like, executive function. Um, and then Masa kind of blew up and became the opportunity to go do it. But um, 
Yeah, I think for me, it was realizing where in that pyramid I function really well and then making sure I ended up in a seat that enabled it. I would define that from my lens, getting to know you as soft-spoken conviction. So you're someone who's like, you're not like loud and in your face, but you're so firm. And when you speak, like you're very firm in your beliefs and you very rarely waver from it. I think like the fundraising is something we've talked about a lot. But yeah. you're able to do it in like a playful, respectful way, mm-hmm. even though you can take someone else who will regurgitate the same exact words that come out of your mouth with a different tone of voice and you would sound like an asshole. <laughs> no, really. I think there's it's it's a it's a superpower, really. Appreciate it. Um, to be able to instill that conviction and truly believe yourself when you say things. And so yeah. people around you believe what you have to say. And it's not that you're bullshitting them. It's that you you sometimes have very aggressive stances, but they're very easy to digest from the other side. So I actually think it's. Really fascinating to watch you build this. Appreciate it. Thank you. So you went to Penn for undergrad. Yep. You did consulting, and then you were in private equity. Yep. How has your circle changed outside of your family and like your really close friends and your team? Sure. How has your circle changed? Because I'm sure the Penn consulting private equity crowd yeah. that you're going for drinks with yeah. is very different than hanging out with Ben or people in the DTC yep. space. So yep. walk me through that transition. Yeah, I think the biggest transition socially has been from people who are very w2 oriented and they want prestige and they want safe income and they're really excited to show like i'm a third year associate at blah blah blah, um towards people who are looking to build things um and there's a lot of buzzwords like around the startups world like builders and founders and i think it's all kind of bullshit but um there is a mentality in the growing part of my social world that you can build an enterprise, you can build a business, you can like do fun things, and that prestige is not really actually prestigious or good. Um, so I found that I am distancing myself from people who are eager to like get their third master's degree and tell you that they're getting another you know stamp from Harvard, um, and towards people who are just working on fun projects and excited to be doing that. Is it the energy? Is it the optimism? Is it the ambition? What about them? Um, I think the third master's degree from Harvard crowd is really insecure and really eager to tell you I got another gold star and you know you should be proud of me and impressed by me and feel intimidated maybe and then the builder crowd is like this is fun this is great what a cool project you know and like they they want to explain it to you and they want to get your perspective on how to build it better um it's almost like to I don't know if this is a good analogy but I'm thinking of a kid who builds um, a really tall Lego structure to go make everyone else feel bad about their lack of Lego structure versus the kid who's like, yeah, what a cool project, but what, what would you add? And they're they like excited to build the outcome, but it's not about their Legos. It's like, this is such a cool project. How exciting is this? And it's a lot more collaborative and like maximizing the outcome oriented as opposed to asserting like, I have an ego. I made it. I won. I'm better than you. Um, and I, I think the not everybody, but there, there is enough presence of that kind of mentality in the pen consulting private equity world um, that I'm glad to shift away from. What about in terms of any correlation you might see from the perspective of mindset and habits and like choices of activities like hobbies? Um, Paul Graham has this cute essay. He has a lot of great essays. Uh, one of them is called Playing House, I think, or it's about Playing House. And it's the idea that um, the Harvard Goldman KKR crowd wants to be a founder. And so they start doing the things they think uh, is what a founder does. You have to get a pitch deck together. You have to raise money. You have to go to all these meetings and conferences. Um, I, I do actually see that as the unifying thing in the founder world of like, 
everybody's doing cold plunging and everybody's doing sauna. And um, I think these are these are not bad. <laughs> you know, sorry, um, not bad habits at all. Like I, I enjoy all that kind of stuff too. But I think there is like a bit of fitting in in the founder world on the habit side. Um, there's a lot of fitting in in the KKR Golden crowd where it's like you have to go to the right bars and restaurants and you have to go to Patagonia and tell everyone it was life changing because you had four days in a llama or something. Um, so it's it's not that that is not extremely present in this driver world. Um, but I think the, the kind of funny, that doesn't bother me too much, but there's like a funny like trend in the founder world of you need to be waking up at 4 a.m. and you need to be listening to this bot, a Huberman and whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's funny to watch. I actually love, I'll be the first to admit that when I first started, I was trying to check all those boxes sure. and I've definitely become more realistic and be, I mm -hmm. think it's helped me substantially. There's certain things that I'll do for me because I actually enjoy them, but yep. you know, you read all these things. It's like, oh yeah, I was successful, but that's because I woke up at five and journaled and ran and cold plunge and meditated and blah, blah, blah. Yep. But I love, there, there are successful people out there who are like, you just need to like build shit that people want and yep. The difference between success and failure is not if you woke up at 6 a.m. and did all these things. Yep. Sure, there's incremental benefits, but don't believe everything that you read out there, which I think is a huge, it's an important learning lesson for early founders who their first thing they're going to do is look around them at their peers, like you said, or in terms of fitting in. You're successful. What are the things you're doing? Okay, that probably means I should be doing those things also, which is not the case at all. And I think it's yep. it's on you to figure out how fast you can learn that. Yeah, I, I think with building a business, it's make something somebody wants and then figure out a way to distribute it, right? Like it, it, it's a simplification or whatever. Um, like building a business is not about having crazy discipline or cold plunging or running 80 miles a week or whatever it is. It's make something people actually want. Find a real problem that people have, uh, go fix it for them, and then distribute that to all the people who might be interested in that. Um, I, I try to be helpful when people are playing with a new product and they want to get feedback. Uh, so I take calls every week or so from, you know, so I'm usually a pen guy who, uh, or person who's looking to launch a business and often they'll bring a product or um, a Figma for a product and we'll start going through it. And I realize almost always like actually haven't identified a problem. They have identified what they think might be a problem. And instead of just calling people and getting research done to figure out like what problem actually is here, they'll start building a product because that's what founders do, right? You, you have a product and you have like a brand behind it and you can go market it. Um, but I, I think just relaxing on the what do founders do and doing the how do I build a business uh, logic, it ends up with a lot better results. Classic pen guy mistake. Classic, yeah. Classic. Classic. It was funny this morning before coming here, I had like a two-hour block and yeah. I had to finish some client deliverables and then we're launching some new products. Yeah. Ben and I will have updates on that soon. But I basically was looking at this two-hour block, and I could either do these things, work on product, work on some distribution, like you're yeah. saying. And then I also, in my calendar, I swear to God, I had meditate, read, <laughs> and red light. This is on my calendar from today. And I was and I was doing work, and I kept looking at them. I was like, that looks really fun. Yeah. And I almost like slapped myself in the face. I was like, what are you doing, man? Take that off your calendar. There's no need to do that. I, Hand up. I, I've, I've <laughs> done all the same things and I've, I've stripped it back now. So now the only thing that I have on there, there's two things. The first one is uh, go comment on two LinkedIn posts and two tweets. Yep. It's like a 10 minute block. Content yep. 101. Um, and then the only other one that I have is sit still. As crazy cool. as it sounds, right? I'm, and that's in the evening. It's at uh, 945. 
because I'm someone who always, uh, we talked about this, but I always see chaos. I'm always with people or around things digitally. Yeah. And I, I'm someone who has to make a conscious effort to be like, okay, just be with yourself for a minute and take a deep breath. Yeah. But I've had to get rid of, I used to, cause it would stress me out. I'd be like, oh, I, I have to like, answer these emails and do these things, but my calendar says it's time to go sauna and red light. I'm like, I can't do that right now. And then you yeah. don't do it, and you feel like you actually failed at something. <laughs> Just like, why are you using a calendar if you're not actually following the calendar? Yeah. I, I think uh, one thing I want to be clear about in this conversation, I don't think any of these are bad habits. Right? It's not like I think sauna and cold plunging and red light and meditation are bad things. I think there are a lot of people who do them because they see them as like the things that a founder does. Um Personally, I, I do think you know, self-care to borrow some language is actually really important. Building a business takes time. It's stressful. You're going to burn a ton of money. You're going to have a lot of people trust you to like be responsible and have good outcomes. Um, and I think burning out in that environment is very easy. I've felt it kind of coming on at times. I'm sure everyone has, right? And so I do think it's really important to create a lifestyle where you can watch Tons of money, blur, like get lit on fire. You can have problems happen. You can have to fire people. You have to make commitments. To, like, like all that stress has to get resolved, and you have to be able to contain it for long enough to build an actual enterprise. Um, so I, I think making sure your life enables that is really important. I just think it's kind of funny that like the ways that people approach self care tend to be like, what does the founder do? Uh, but I, I don't think these are bad habits. Like I think meditation seems to work for a lot of people. Red light works for a lot of people. Sauna works for a lot of people, right? So they're good habits. They just it's kind of funny. I'm curious how you think about building a culture with Masa, with your employees, because you came from the 22 hours a day mentality. Yeah. You are now in the mindset of high impact all the time, and it's not counting how many hours I'm contributing to the business. It's just thinking strategically. Yeah. And then it's how do you take a healthy mix of the two with your employees for yeah. them to understand what is you know the gold standard here? Yeah. Um, big learning curve. So managing people in general is hard you now have a different person with thoughts and feelings and a personal life that you want them to do things for you that are never perfectly translated. Um, I personally have gotten feedback from my employees that I'm too vague, um, which is on brand. Um, vague so about I, what, what they should be doing? Instructions, yeah. Okay. So I'll send an email, for example, um, one of our investors is a big guy in food distribution. And he asked uh, to get a bunch of product to two of his houses, one in Chicago and one in Florida. And so I looped in someone who on uh, my team to help get product sent over. And I said, send this person a bunch of product, um, which in my mind is like, I don't really care how much you send. Send them whatever sounds like a lot to you. And I don't, I'm not going to check. I don't care. Uh, for this person, that was a very stressful experience. It was like, I don't know what a lot is. And I don't want to fuck up and send 12 bags if you meant eight. And oh, God, what do I do? And uh, an experience I'm not familiar with, she, this person felt very uncomfortable asking questions. So I've never felt ashamed to ask questions. I am happy to say, I don't know what that means. Please tell me. Um, I found out literally this morning, that's an uncommon experience. Most people find asking questions uncomfortable. They feel like I'll look stupid or, you know, it's it, whatever. So um, big learning for me on how that works. On the broader point of building culture, I think there has to be a lot of intentionality. Um, Steven and I, my business partner are pretty direct. Um, there's not a lot of ego. There's not a lot of, um, I need to be right or whatever. It's just, let's figure out truth and then act on that. So our calls often sound like a fight. I've had conversations with him on the phone where someone's in the room and they're like, is Masa over? <laughs> like what's, what's going on? And I'm like, no, we just solved it. What, what do you mean? <laughs> like what, what's the problem? Um, and in contrast, most people don't work that way. The JP Morgan point. Right. And so there's a lot of 
incorporating small talk more intentionally, asking how that thing is going, and um, and not just going through the motions, but actually meeting them where they are and what they need out of that working relationship, which is a relationship. Um, and so Steve and I have been very intentional about that, but it's hard. Um, yeah. It's funny during the day, not during the day, but every week I have one-on-ones with kind of key team members. Mm-hmm. And I was telling Karina about this, my girlfriend, that half of the team members actually want all those 20, 30 minutes yep. just to talk. It could yep. be about their day. It could be about their week. It could be completely unrelated to work. But that really matters to them. Yep. And then I have some that I have one-on-ones with that every week we just cancel them. <laughs> because we'll check in for like 30 seconds. And she's like, yeah, I'm good. We, yeah. we don't need to talk, man. Yeah. And then we'll just get back to work. But yeah. it is important because for a little while I was thinking about removing all those one-on-ones from my calendar. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I don't need these. But it's important to really be mindful and actually go through every single person and yep. think through what is their working style? What do they need from me mm-hmm. as a leader, as a founder? And then making sure they have that. Yep. That's the challenging part, though, is as you scale a team, it's what is the culture you want to build? And are you trying to find people who share similar values or behaviors? And then, of course, there's going to be the dissimilar ones, because if you're hiring an engineer versus a marketer or a salesperson, it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. But I think something that we've spent a lot of time talking about as co-founders, because we're starting to scale our team more now, is the culture piece of it, right? There's certain components that certain employees have from a characteristic perspective where I'm like, this kind of isn't what we really need right now. Uh, But it's something we learned and now we need to keep an eye out for this later on in the screening process. I mean, you learn at an early stage of a startup, one bad hire can really affect you. Totally. And it's really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, hiring is really hard. I, we have, we're still struggling to figure out how do you, find the right people. Um, I've heard from friends who are farther along their founder journey, whatever you want to call it, that uh, friends of good employees tend to be good hires, which sounds like a good rule of thumb to me. But it's it's really challenging to screen people up front. You don't want to hire people that aren't a fit. You have to let them go. And then you've disrupted their life, right? So like it's, it's bad for you. It's bad for them. Uh, it's, it's like not a good outcome for anybody. It's bad for the team because now everyone's worried, like, am I going to be let go? Um, so I, yeah, hiring is really important and really hard. Um, one thing we've tried, which seems to work, is to have like short-term contract or part-time setups to start. And those things almost always evolve naturally into full-time roles within like two weeks because they're great. You send them work, it gets done well, and you're like, I should keep sending you work. Um, or it's not a fit, and then it's a softer transition out because the contract ran up and it's okay to move on. So we're, we're playing with that as a mechanism. It's functionally an internship. Um, but yeah, hiring is really hard and having let go people who are not a good fit, not bad people, but it's not a good fit for the team is also just unpleasant for everybody. How do you structure those? Are they 30, 60, 90 day sprints on 1099? Um, we haven't structured them. <laughs> the, the Simplicity. Honesty. Working through it. <laughs> we, we I basically, send them a task. They either send it back or they don't. There's no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, we, we basically do, we'll start you at 10 hours a week at, you know, like pay that no one's excited about, but if you want to be here, it's you know interesting enough to go prove whatever is working. Um, and then, in theory, we probably should structure it more. Say it's like an eight-week contract. We may or may not renew. We, we don't do that. We should. Um, but in my experience so far, by week two or week three, it's pretty clear. Like this person is a great fit. When you send them problems, they go away. Awesome. Um, or they're not a good fit, and you send them problems, and they get buried, and then they don't ask questions because they don't know what to do, and then that just doesn't work. But so. what do you think about the fact that a lot of the best operators are probably full-time employed, 
say at other brands that you want to go hire them and you can't start them at like, hey, we'll pay you for five hours a week. Yeah, I, we've been pretty intentional about getting agencies for roles that would be expensive hires and we'll get that. We'll cross the bridge when we get there. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have like a media buyer. We have email guys. We have content creators all outside the organization. So contracting out to agencies for us has worked pretty well to start. Um, the things that we've hired for internally are not like you need the like my team's great. This is not shitting on anybody, but like I don't need somebody who like built Harry's to come work at Masa. I can take someone who's 24, ambitious and excited to go do good work and plug them in on the stuff that we need and they can figure it out. So we the way we've built the company so far like we can take people who are generally talented, who don't have a decade at Harry's, that can get plugged in and be fine. Who are freelancing or between jobs? They're between jobs. They just finished college. Um, maybe they're open to ten hours a week because, like, fuck it, it's a few hundred bucks to spend on beer money or whatever they're you know they do. Um, and then after a few weeks in or a couple months, whatever it is, you're like, hey, you're great. We want you on full time. Here's an offer, and they're like, sure, sure, I'm excited. Yeah. So you'll go agency for a couple months to get learnings see what best in class looks like, hopefully. Fingers yeah. crossed, best in class. Yeah. And then based on those learnings, start to scope out a role for like a young hustler. Um, No, not really how we're doing it. So agencies for us are, we, we've had our email guys, for example, for I don't know, a year and a half now. Um, and they're great. I don't really plan to replace them. They're not too expensive and they work. So it's not like everything needs to be in-house. If I can have a cost item that is totally fine and work that's good I, I'm fine with that I don't need them to be on my payroll directly so I don't have um, a big preference to in-house work unless they're the savings would be pretty material and none of our like our media our media buyer we pay under 10k a month right and so if you're gonna find someone in-house who's gonna be as good they're gonna be around that cost right like maybe save through grand a month but it's not gonna be a needle mover you know this is 50k back every every month so um, we're not in a situation where our agencies cost us so much that it would make sense to insource, honestly. Um, and it's a lot higher, harder to hire for specialized things um, versus general like wholesale support or customer service support, which you can figure out pretty quick. Yeah, you're hiring a bunch right now. So walk me through how you're thinking through different roles, agencies, contractors, full-time. Um, we, everything on the engine product and engineering side is full-time. Uh, I think we're it just doesn't make sense for our business where you're like bringing in, you're plugging in pieces. Like I would, we would never work with a development agency to come like yeah. s build a part of our product. I think we have used an agency for some content creation stuff. We've used an agency for some automation work, ops focused. So I'd say maybe like marketing ops, we're more open to it depending on what it is. But we're a software company and majority of our team, like, you know, we're 12 full-time and four part-time right now. And our full-time employees, like three of them aren't technical, right? So it's predominantly engineers and product people, which all of those people are full-time. So I think it's yep. maybe different for software. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I think the only area where we're interested in agency, uh, unless there's ad hoc work, right? So like we're using someone to make an animation video or we went through a rebrand, we use an agency, but ongoing, it's only been like ops and some content stuff. Yeah, that checks out. I'm curious, over the past six months to a year, essentially once Masa really started to take off, um, what are some of the coolest experiences, coolest people that you've gotten to meet or just like coolest rooms that you've been able to get into that you wouldn't have had access to before, including yeah. this one? Yeah. Oh, so this is number one, obviously <laughs> turning pro is uh, a very rarefied space, but 
Um, and of cool places, I now get inbounds from VCs every day or so. So if somebody wants to meet me wherever, um, our lead, uh, the family fund uh, for our seed round is in California. So we got uh, went out to Ojai, which is about an hour north of LA, stayed at this like beautiful resort for two days, got to pitch to their LPs, and then their keynote speaker, who's now an investor as well, uh, basically said, here's all the trends in food. This is all the stuff that's trash. Don't worry about it. This is going to make money. And then pointed Stephen and I out and said, give these guys money right now if you want to make money. Wow. Um, so that was a cool moment. God, we, VCs are just the best, man. They're, they're awesome, man. <laughs> um, but we, we, we really had like a key opinion leader in the Better For You food space give a 20-page presentation about all the trends in food over the next five years. And the like climax of, of the speech was pointing Stephen and I out in the audience saying, these guys are the best investment in this room. Give them money right now if you want to be here. And that helped, which was nice. So he, he brought in a bunch of money, which was great. Um, but that's probably the coolest uh, offhand. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind is I've become friendly with uh, Joe Desenia at Spartan. Yeah. So I, uh, I met him in Fenway uh, in Boston for a race and become good friends with him and an advisor uh, in a lot of ways. And his network is phenomenal as well. And so there's a lot of like, I think as a, like a, as a founder, executive, whatever you want to call it, there's just a level of legitimacy you have where people like take your opinion seriously and want to talk to you. I think a lot of the things I would say today are things I would have said three years ago. It's not like I've had some transformative experience that led to insights that I couldn't have gotten to three years ago. But I think being um, an employee somewhere versus building your own thing just changes what people react to you and, and relate to you. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Oh, so much. Uh, Most of I it. I love Seth is opinionated, so I think it's important to ask questions like <laughs> no, that where they'll one. just drop the hammer. Yeah. Um, and name who gave you the advice. Uh, that, that, that I will pass on. Um, bad advice I've gotten. Um, I've gotten a lot of people who are eager to hire lots of expensive people. So it's, I think this is like a ZERP bubble thing, but um, a lot of VCs who want you to go hire like five or 10 people from McKinsey to go make more PowerPoint slides for you um, in-house. So bring them in for ops and strategy. And back to the simplification, we do three things. I make chips, I find new customers, I sell them more chips, right? It's like not a complicated business. And so I think being slow to hire expensive people is really good for us. Maybe I'm naive and there are other businesses where it's great, but for us, it's that's been really solid. Um, I think people who we, we got one piece of advice that I, I think is actually not terrible advice, but um, giving context it can be, which was when you get the money, when money's available, you should take it. I think for us, that was probably needed advice. I, I ran the business very lean for about a year uh, because I wanted to grow it before taking in more money, just multiples, blah, blah. Um, but I think for a lot of startups, especially during the bubble, they took in crazy amounts of money. They had no discipline at all on how to build the business. They didn't know what building the business meant. They just were playing house. Um, and they would burn tens of millions of dollars, which you know, even if it's not your money, you should feel bad about that. Somebody's money is being burned. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, the fiscal discipline that being poor builds is a really good experience to start, at least. Um, we probably should have taken more money earlier, but I, I think that is bad advice for a lot of people. Um, the last thing that comes to mind for bad advice is grow revenue at all costs. 
So I love people who talk, and this is back to needle moving, but they'll talk about like fringe things that don't move the needle. Um, you can change this slight package design thing, or you can get into this other store, like fringe things uh, that are not worth the time, um, or scaling things that aren't working. So uh, you can build top line in a lot of ways. I can go sell you stuff. At, I can sell you money, right? I can buy $100, give you $100, and call that revenue. That doesn't create value for anybody. Um, and so making sure that unit economics are like attractive and scalable before putting effort into them, I think is really important. I'm curious, you've probably met a lot of the big names or influencers in paleo, biohacking, yeah, yeah. Keto, health and wellness, is health and wellness yeah. influencer yeah. space. Yeah. And I follow a lot of, I think it's a lot of guys specifically on yeah. like weird Twitter circles, yeah. like Soulbra or Carnivorous, Carnivorous Carnivore Aurelius. Aurelius yeah. yeah, yeah. And I love all their content. Yeah. But I'm curious to get your take because I'm sure you've talked to a lot of them because half the stuff I see they advise, I'm like, that's really good advice. Like you yeah. should probably use a filter on your tap water yeah. or maybe don't use fluoride in all your toothpaste or don't have too many seed oils. Experts love fluoride. I don't know what you're talking about. I'll stay out of <laughs> But at the same time, then I see some of their stuff and they're like, eat steak with every meal. And I'm like, that's horrible for your <laughs> cholesterol. You shouldn't do that. Yeah. And so are there any hot takes or things that you've experienced that you're like, Eh, this is a little too deep. Um, my my hotter take actually is that most of the stuff doesn't matter very much. Mm. Um, like I think if you talk to doctors, not that I'm anyway, that's another conversation. But um, there's not medical advice. Not medical <laughs> advice. But I think the thing that matters, the things that matter most, are like sleep enough, don't be obese, don't drink a bunch of alcohol, don't smoke, and your life expectancy is basically as good as it's going to get. If you enjoy these habits, like I. Um, when I was in California, I ate, uh, I was uh, keeping kosher and it's hard to get kosher meat in the Bay Area. And so I found I didn't feel great when I was eating a pescatarian or a vegetarian diet. And so I could feel an impact on how I felt generally. Um, so I think there, there are impacts from these things, but they're broadly overrated. It's kind of cult-like. Um, again, not like individuals, be, whatever, but like if these things are fun hobbies for you, that's enough to justify doing them. If you think that taking one more supplement is going to change your life, don't. <laughs> you know? But you should have masa chips. You should have masa chips. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about the three most common traits in high performers? That's my favorite question, by the way, to ask on the podcast. I'm going to start stealing it on this podcast. Yeah. It's my, it's my, I love the answers. Uh, intelligence, structure, and listening skills. Unpack those. So intelligence is just horsepower. Can you process reality? Can you process what people are talking about? Um, structure is taking things and creating enough structure to then apply that processing. So you can solve a math problem, but you do, do you know what problems to solve and in what order and for what purpose? And listening skills are the thing I think is what lacks is most lacking in collaborative context. So people don't know what other people are talking about. Um, they're waiting for the chance to respond. They're really excited to get their point in. They have a zinger. They've got you, whatever it is. Um, I think to be a high performer, you have to understand where other people are and what is important to them. Um, I, I, taking this in a business context, I think performance is broader than business. But in a business context, you have to get I will have to get a thousand people to like me and do something that I need them to do over the next two years, ba making up numbers, obviously. Um, if you don't know what people care about and what motivates them, you can't be helpful for them. You can't be a good friend. You can't be a business partner. 
you're just demanding stuff and hoping they give it to you. And so I think to be competent in a business context, you have to understand what motivates the people you're talking to and how you can be helpful. Do your best to be helpful um, and things flow back. Mm. What have you had to sacrifice as you've, I guess, experienced your own kind of like turning pro journey over the past year or two? Yeah. Is it social time? Is it maybe time with your family? Is it time for yourself? What have you given um, up? I've been pretty intentional about not giving things up. I also, my baseline coming into this was private equity hours since mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of work life balance. Um, so that hasn't really been an issue for me. Um, I actually, I was, I grew up in New Jersey. My family, most of my friends are all here. And so moving back to New York when I quit PE from California, I actually got back a lot of family time and a lot of friend time. Mm. Um, so that hasn't been a trade-off for me. The biggest trade-off was before Masa, I was a 26-year-old vice president at a $5 billion fund. That feels good, you know, like objectively. And I, I, I'll make fun of the Harvard, Goldman, KKR kids all, all day long, but um, being in that Context feels nice, right? It's nice to be able to say I have all these credentials and you should be impressed by me. I went from vice president at a $5 billion fund to I have a food company you've never heard of. I sell tortilla chips. Um, and at this point in my life, it's uh, in the, the business journey, whatever you want to call it, it's legitimate enough that it does feel good again. So I, I feel proud to say I, I'm a co-founder, owner of Masa, and this is the business. And um, the energy is kind of back to feeling good about talking about what I do. Um, but the first... I don't know, three months probably from March to maybe June of 2023. Super awkward. You're like, I have a fake business because you've never heard of it. And if it was real, you'd have heard of it. And um, that kind of sucks. You know, it's is like that, nice is that driven by insecurity? Um, probably. Uh, I, I don't call that insecurity. I think like as monkeys, we all kind of enjoy status. Like it feels good to be impressive and do cool shit. Um, I think I'm a pretty secure person, generally speaking, but it feels bad to lose the thing that you got to feel good about before, you know? We call that the golden handcuffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not taking a salary for nine months, also painful. But <laughs> I, think it, I think it depends on the context of like the people that you're around, though. Also true. Because yeah. I, I remember when I tried to start a company before I launched Verbatim, and I was in San Francisco and me tinkering on the side nights yeah. and weekends building a stealth company. <laughs> All my friends were investors and founders out there. And yeah. they were like, keep going, man. That's so exciting. I can't yeah, wait. Yeah. Once it launched, I lost any clout that I had <laughs> from building a stealth company. But for my buddies back home that I went to college with or high school with, they're like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm trying to do this content thing. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, were you an adventure, man? That sounds so much cooler. Yeah. And yeah, I think it really depends. Like if you're hanging out with us and you're yeah. starting your company, we're like, hell yeah, man, that's exciting. Yeah. Versus private equity or consulting. But there's buddies. a reason that totally. most people don't make it that far because you have to see the vision before anyone else does. And you have to be willing to stick with it when you have those conversations when someone's like, dude, you're making chips. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, Go to the convenience store. There's plenty of chips. Yeah. You don't need to make me another bag of chips. Yeah. Can you withstand that and overcome it, right? I think yep. that holds true to 99% of businesses. You look crazy until you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a really funny, um, when I, we first had the idea, it's like spring 22, it's a concept. We're going to make the best tortilla chip in the world and we're going to, you know, have this whole lifestyle brain around it. And I was talking to people in my network, like, yeah, that's dumb. Don't do that. It's a waste of time. Um, and then as uh, numbers start coming in and repeat spend starts coming in and we're scaling it, those people all became investors. And so it's been uh, kind of fun. And I don't fault them for it, but it's been kind of funny to watch like 
that beginning stage holding to some thesis you have, it's a bet, right? You're going to try it out, burn 5, 10K to like see if this thing's worth doing. Um, and you have to endure. A lot of people are like, that's, they'll openly make fun of you. You know, <laughs> like it sucks. It's awkward. Do you, um, oh, wait, I lost, I lost my train of thought. I was, I was curious about, uh, like when you think about evolving as a business, do you have any sense of like, how do you think about relationships with people who are like that, who then want to come back to the table like later on? Is that something that I, I don't burn bridges, over not burn bridges. Let me re- make sure I'm clear. I'm, I'm, a huge, bothered I'm, a huge ad, I'm a huge advocate of don't burn bridges. I a hundred percent agree with you, but is there any sense of like, if someone doesn't believe in you at a certain point and then they come back later on, like, are you, do you have any sort of like, no, I, no? I have no issue with that. Um, and I think there are characters who I've met that I don't want to deal with. I think they have bad intention, bad energy, whatever you want to call it. Um, so there are people who I will choose to not take meetings from. I'll tell them we're actually totally full on cash. We, we're not fundraising. Um, we're always fundraising. But, you know, for, for certain folks, they get uh, that text tomorrow. I'm <laughs> <laughs> a good conversation. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're always I'm always I can take a safe note in. I, I don't really care. So I always can take in a 5K, 10K check, whatever. Um, but all the conversations where it kind of ends with like, yeah, no, we're, we're good. Um, we're, we're actually not at the moment. Um, but for someone who says, based on the data I have, it just doesn't seem correct to me. That's a totally fair opinion. Like, I have no, you don't have to agree with me. And if, if that's the basis of it, like you think I'm incorrect, that's fine. Um, so yeah, I don't take offense to it at all. And then the one thing you just alluded to, which, you know, I'm so fascinated by, which I think people listening to this could benefit from is just the art of fundraising. Yeah. I I don't know how aggressive I'm allowed to get on this because you know I have a very strong stance. We've talked about this at length with yeah. you, uh, what you've been able to pull off. I, is that am I okay to like not? Yeah, we could chat the topic. It's it's basically that like I cannot believe the valuation that he was able to pull from his raise. And no, I, I actually <laughs> it's a compliment. I, I invested. It. I invested in it because of how strongly I disagreed with it and how much I couldn't believe that he got full buy. And I was like, you know what this. This guy's. I'm gonna get back more than I'm putting in this. I know I will on the basis of this, and I know it goes against like yeah. core principles. But it's really been fascinating what he's been able to to do. So I, I I don't know. Maybe you can just speak to some of the things to do versus not to do as founders listening, trying to raise their own money. Yeah. So just for context, he raised at a very impressive valuation, <laughs> uh, relative to what's going on in just capital markets, and so I he clearly knows a thing or two about storytelling. Yeah. So the there's a lot to unpack here. Um, first, laying the ground on what capital markets are. There are three kinds of businesses. There is venture, which is early stage. Is there a business here? There is growth, which is, in my opinion, totally uninvestable, makes no sense. And there's late stage, which is basically real estate. Um, my first job in investing was late stage. So you're finding things that are stable. You don't know, it's it's not a big bet on where revenues and, and cash flow is going to be five years from now. Um, and you're just underwriting what yield am I basically taking on my bond, right? It's this thing is going to print 20 million bucks a year. I'm willing to take a 10% yield and so I'll pay $200 million for it, right? It's like pretty simple math. Um, venture as a sector is, is there a business here? If there is, it's going to be a winner. You want in. If there's not, it's a loser. You don't want to get in. Valuation, in my opinion, should never be the deciding factor for an investor. If you're talking to someone whose deciding opinion is valuation, they are going to lose all their money very quickly, and I, I would not give them money as an LP. Um, growth, in my opinion, just to round out the conversation, we'll jump to the storytelling. 
um, is basically all investable. It's all about valuation. And because the businesses are growing so fast, valuation is impossible as a process. And so I don't think you can price a growth asset and investing in them is crazy. Um, so for me as an investor, which is my prior training pr before Masa, um, it's either venture or it's late stage. That's investable in storytelling. For venture fundraising, um, the entire thing's a story. Nobody gives a shit that you made a million dollars last year in revenue. That's not interesting. It's not a business, right? There, there are taco shacks down the road that sold a million dollars in taco. Like, that's not a business. The story has to be five-ish years from now, what can this thing be? What are the, back to the structure side, what are the specific controllable drivers that I see have control over and am executing on between now and then to achieve this outcome? What is that outcome worth? And what is fair compensation for you today based on that outcome? What I see people doing in venture is, uh, as founders is looking backwards. They'll say, I did $2 million in revenue last year. What's that worth? And if you're an investor, you can say, I don't know, multiples, 3x, and so I'll pay you a $6 million valuation. If you're doing a million dollars next month, that's extremely important information. If you're going to be at $100 million in two years from now, that's extremely important information. Um, and so backwards-looking fundraising doesn't understand what you're selling the investor, which is where will you be when they exit, when they get paid? Um, what is that thing worth and how does that translate to fair compensation? Um, and to the confidence issue, I think a lot of people feel like they're lying when they express confidence. Like if I tell you, and tell, uh, uh, fact check me on this, um, I think I'm pretty honest with people, this thing good to zero, right? It's a venture bet. And also I fully believe this is the outcome we're gonna achieve. I quit a seven-figure job in finance to go do this thing. This is the structured way we get from here to there. And this is why the, all the data says we're going to continue and, and get there. Um, and so I think being honest about how confident you are while still having a view and, and saying, like, this is what I expect is how you should storytell. Um, and, yeah, that, that's a, a bit rambly about how I think about it. No, I think the key differentiator that you just said is you actually believe everything you say. Totally. I think it's yeah. very easy to look at a founder who's raising, who's saying something. And I'm like, I don't actually know if you even believe that. So I don't know why you think I'm going to believe that. Yeah. And I, I think that actually is why you've been able to do what you do is because when you say things, you're so brutally honest and you genuinely think that like you're not bullshitting yourself. So yep. you're not bullshitting other people. Totally. And I, I think structure is how I get really confident on things. Um, so I am totally fine saying I have no opinion on that or I don't know. Um, I, I don't feel the need to have an opinion on, on everything. Uh, but for things that I form an opinion on, I have structured reasons to believe them. It's not I feel good or bad and therefore. Um, so, I, yeah, I feel very confident on the things I have. And I think structuring what has to literally happen between now and then for you to get there can give you that confidence and you should believe it. The other thing I think founders f*** up with is they think of the journey as too far out. Um, and what I mean by that is if you're pre-product or pre-problem or wherever you are really early, you actually are not on the leg of the journey to go to scale. Like you, you don't have a thing to go bring 200 million because you have a thing to go to one. Um, and so I think thinking about the process of building a business as a series of bets, um, I have to go prove this thing. And when I do that, I'll unlock value. Valuation is up. You got some intermediate return as an investor. And I now have a higher probability of getting to this ultimate end stage thing is a, a better way to build a business. Um, so if you're pre-problem or you're pre-product or pre-scaling or whatever, I think identifying that as the thing that you need to go solve, the cash you need to go prove it or fail, which is totally fine, um, is a the right way to storytell. 
for us, we basically self-funded until we had product market fit and we're scaling. So Steven and I, um, I worked in finance, Steven came from Facebook, had a little bit of personal savings. We put in about a quarter of a million of our own money, which allowed us to get way farther along before taking in material outside capital. If you're in that position, that's fine. Capital markets exist to give you that equity capital. Um, but understand what are you proving in the next leg and like tell that story as, as part of the context. Um, I think if you're, if you don't have a prototype and you're selling this hundred million a year vision, you're bullshitting, right? Like you, you don't, you're not there yet. Um, and so you, you have to calibrate correctly on how big of a story do you actually think you will achieve? Why are you risking your time and reputation to go do this thing? Um, and then tell that story accordingly. Before we wrap, can you walk us through that? Maybe not that whole story, but the four or five year vision that you are pitching in a live conversation. Totally. So the vision for- Adrian will decide after this if he's investing or not. Yeah, perfect. Would you like $500? <laughs> we, we actually, our check app is 250. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so the vision for Masa, the vision for Ancient Crunch, which is really the business, is to make the perfect version of Frito-Lay. So Frito-Lay sells all your favorite, favorite crunchy junk food. You want a potato chip, a corn chip, a pretzel, or whatever. What we want to do is replace all the seed oils with animal fats, replace all of the carcinogenic pesticide-laced corn and wheat with you know, real high-quality inputs, brand it beautifully, and then offer that in venues where you, you kind of are shopping intentionally. So the vision for Ancient Crunch is that if you are the kind of person who cares about what you put in your body and you want to enjoy your crunchy carbs, or you're not on a keto diet or a water fast or whatever, um, the carb of choice, if you're going to have a crunchy carb, is Ancient Crunch. So we're going to have uh, tortilla chips, which is masa chips. We have a potato chip coming Q3-ish, which will be fried in duck fat. Um, different brand called Vandy Crisps. We'll have a cheese cracker, pretzels, etc. cetera. Um, that's the like V1 of Ancient Crunch. The story we're now playing a little bit with internally is actually becoming a kind of curated platform for all of the best versions of things you want. And that's a little bit tricky. So to break it down, um, this summer, for example, we're going to launch a swimsuit. And we're going to have like 500 units, not a ton. But um, if you go to buy a swimsuit today, you will almost certainly find that you have to wear plastic. And that sucks. People want to wear cotton or linen or wool or whatever. Uh, my business partner was on his honeymoon in Greece. And he happened upon this uh, boutique swim swimsuit shop somewhere. Um, and they had an all-cotton bathing suit, dries very quickly, looks great, just perfect super high quality product. And so there's a version of ancient crunch that turns into ancient life or something where we also become a reseller for, we're not going to take on more manufacturing, but become a reseller for other curated, super high quality, best in class, best in world things, uh, lotions and potions and clothing and whatever else. Um, but the, the core vision today is that we are the, the fruit of lay killer to, to take some founder language. Oh yeah. I'm in. Let me know sure. to sign. 250. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Perfect. Cool. Awesome, Seth. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate having me on. So it's a good time. Where can people find you? Where can people go to shop? Can look at Shout you. out for Masa Chips. So uh, easiest is masachips.com. Uh, get you a discount code or something in the link for people to, to use. If you're in LA, we are f***ing everywhere in Erewhon. So great place to buy us. Um, Bristol Farms. Fountain Blue as of today. So that's a big win. But uh, yeah, easiest is just to go on masachips.com. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Awesome.